Welcome to Milkmaid's Podcast, the unconventional homesteading podcast. I'm Stephanie from Wyoming. And I'm Tara from Montana. Join us each week as we take a deep dive into an inclusive homesteading topic from canning, dairy animals, gardening, animal husbandry, and everything in between. Sup, Tara? Hi. Hi. Did you happen to notice that I wrote August on our <laughs> outline today? And really, I've never been more proud. I know. Gold star for me. Oh my gosh. Well, for August, who are we shouting out? This week, we are shouting out Mother's Finest Urban Farm, and they're out of North Carolina. We haven't done anyone in North Carolina yet, I don't think. Have we? Maybe we have. No, I just always talk about how amazing it must be to live in North Carolina. That's all. Seriously. Yeah. And especially having like an urban farm, you know, we're both obsessed with urban farms. So Mother's Finest Urban Farm was started by Samantha Fox Winship who is native to North Carolina and a daughter of indigenous people. Samantha's education has led her to a journey of holistic remedies, farming and beekeeping, and servicing the community with authentic love and support for healing her family and her community. Samantha is a huge advocate for education, empowerment, and promotion of women and people of color in the world of beekeeping, agriculture, and art innovation. So Mother's Finest Urban Farm consists of 2.5 acres in an urban environment, and they lease five more acres in other city limits to expand their farming production, which is phenomenal. That's actually a ton of acreage. If I think of it, I get overwhelmed by the little plot I have. So they're really doing pretty good amounts of food. Yeah, because we, I mean, we have a lot more land than that here, but our, if I think about my actual market garden size, I don't know what it is in terms of acres, but I don't even think it's one acre. Yeah. It might be Same for me. Yeah. Right. They sell CSA boxes to the local community and their farm consists of chickens, worms, mushrooms, specialty items, and bees. The bees are the most well-known. I'm like, this is a side note. I'm so fascinated by worms. Yes. And like the vermiculture. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of people doing it now. And have you seen the things where you can keep it like in your apartment? Yeah. And it's supposed to not smell or anything. Yeah. There's a ton of, I'm a houseplant hoarder. So there's a lot of houseplant people that do that just for their houseplants, which is (laughs) phenomenal. I love that. It would bring me joy. Tangent. (laughs) (laughs) So even their children are involved on the farm and are constantly learning to help and produce food for the community. So how sweet is that? It's amazing. It's really amazing. And on top of all of that, Samantha also hosts beekeeping classes. You can check that out on her website and really the prices are reasonable, especially if you're just wanting to learn. I think especially for beekeeping, learning in person is the most important and useful way to learn about beekeeping because it's such an art. Yeah, absolutely. On their website, they also sell a variety of very unique items such as Jamaican Scotch bonnet infused honey, which I really, really want. Also, their jars are very beautiful Mm -hmm. and their labels are just very well done. They have hand dipped incense, which you know I'm all about. We're all about that life. (laughs) Yes, we are. They have the cutest honey soap bars and you can even donate a hive or like $5 in order to further their efforts to save the bees. And they are really into having bee safe seeds and spreading the knowledge and the seeds around in their community. Their website is called mothersfinesturbanfarms.com. And it looks like they're having like this little get together. It's actually going to be pretty big at the fairgrounds that's local to them where they're going to have bands and they're just going to further their efforts in supplying the community with food and saving the bees. So how cool is that? That's amazing. Yeah, I really want to go to it, but I don't think I can justify 
flying all the way to North Carolina, even though I really want to because bees are awesome. I'll rent you a car. Yeah, seriously, (laughs) because cars are so easy and so cheap to get right now, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, that's incredible. I think we all will be checking them out. Yes. So if you want to ask us a question, send us a shout out, any of the above or more, email us at milkmaidspodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review on iTunes, rate and subscribe. And um, let's see, Facebook and Instagram, Milkmaids Podcast. That was the most unorganized version of that ever. You're welcome. We're here to please. (laughs) We have it together. (laughs) We do. Oh my gosh, Stephanie. Yes. I forgot our icebreaker again, but I did think of one. (laughs) Okay. Let me just think about it for a second. Okay, what is... (laughs) Right? (laughs) What is the most surprising thing about starting a farm that you were not expecting? Um, Customers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, you think that you're going to deal with animals all the time, but mostly you're dealing with humans. (laughs) All the while, you want to make money. Um, Right. Right? Right? So we start a farm because we love animals. But cows don't pay you. No, as it turns out, they're very cheap. They they refuse to pay for your services. Um, (laughs) Despite the full room keeping, I mean, come on. Like breakfast in bed. All they do is shit on your white walls. That's all they do. It's really true. Uh, If if you had any idea. Yeah, I guess like, and I think that's very common when you get into a animal based business that you forget that people go along with that. And a lot, most of our customers are really great, but then there's just a couple that's like, oh, why? Oh, yeah. Why did I do this? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're going to farm and pay your bills together at the same time, you have to work with customers. Humans. Humans. People. People. And I think as farmers, we're so introverted as it is. Mm -hmm. So dealing with people is just a whole other level that I was not expecting. So I totally get that. Right. 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 Yeah, it's great. It's it's. There's definitely great moments of that, but for the most part, it's like, I just want to do my animals and make food and not talk to anybody. Yeah. You almost need like a PR person. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. With all the money I make. Yeah. Fill a whole nother role. Millions of dollars that you make. Right. Yeah. How about you? So I think that the hardest part for me has been finding the time to actually like get food. This sounds so strange, but I didn't realize how much of it is a logistical challenge mm-hmm. to obtain hay. And yes. you're kind of at the whim of the market. So like right now the market for our hay is insane. It is so hard to get hay. I think that's true for cutting. the entire West. Yeah. I mean, there's pockets for sure, but... You really can't say, well, I paid $5 a bale last year and I'm not paying you $11. Like if no. you say that, they're like, okay, but there's 20 people yeah. lined up behind you to yeah. buy it. People that are so, willing to pay more. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You're kind of at the whim of people producing the food for your animals, which is really hard to swallow. It's yes. a really hard pill to swallow. Especially for us closeted preppers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where like, I mean, we've just had a nightmare this year from everything from pig food to chicken feed to hay. Yeah. It's been, and for me, trying to figure out a way to say it that doesn't make me sound like an elitist, I, like, give me the option to pay too much for hay. Um, Yeah. But, like, it was, 
I think we have it figured out now. I will not count my ducks until they're all stacked in the barn. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, for a while there, it was like there was no hay period, no matter how much money you had. Exactly. Um, My main supplier didn't even cut this year. And there was no chicken food or any of that. And it's, it is scary when you think about it, how we get into this business or even lifestyle. Say you're not doing it for a business. We get into this lifestyle out of desire to become self-sufficient. And somehow a year like this year happens and you recognize how, how directly opposite you are from self-sufficient Exactly. in, in that way. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. So if you're just getting into this, know that this isn't normal, but also yeah. is it ever normal? No. Right. Yeah. You're going to have a something. All it's always going to be something. Right. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> That's been fun. Glad we could bring this up a, up a notch. It's super fun. On that happy note, how is things going specifically in your pig barn? I have to know. Oh yeah. I, I don't want you to do any of the other stuff. Get straight to the point. Mm. Let's get to the babies. So Matilda did have her babies a day early, which isn't super unusual. Do you find that gilts have babies early or is that not? Like sometimes people say that about heifers. We haven't had that experience for cows, but. I would say almost always they gilts deliver. Gilt is a pig that's Mm -hmm. never had a litter of pigs, if you're wondering. I've always had gilts deliver three months, three weeks three days on the dot, but mm-hmm. I've had a couple that go a day early and I've had one that went a week over. Holy crap. It's unheard of with pigs, but she was a great mom. The one wow. that went over a week over. Yeah. So that's the thing with birthing animals. Like you are not in control of when they have babies. And it, it was totally fine. Cause I was watching her and I knew exactly she was going to have the babies in because she made her little nest. She laid down and this is the weirdest birth I've ever seen because Piglets usually shoot babies out one right after another. It is like clockwork, like pew, 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 pew. I don't know how to explain (laughs) it. They're like a machine gun birther. It's true. (laughs) When you see the piglets come flying and they kind of do fly out and then they just get up and zoom around and go right to the belly. That is, I mean, a machine gun birther really is about as accurate as it gets probably. (laughs) Yes, and I'm totally used to that. But hers were an hour or more apart. That's, so it was like, and all of them were like that. All of them yeah. were. And I was talking to another friend, and she's like, well, there's something wrong with her. No, there's nothing wrong with her because she's an excellent mother. All of the piglets were healthy. Only one died. So there were eight. And one just died. We don't know why. Um, I have a pretty hands-off approach mm-hmm. because I don't want to keep stock that I have to babysit and pull every piglet. Like, I'm just going to call any bad mom. Yeah. That's why I have the lines I have. And she just had them a little bit longer between the babies. And that's fine. Like, everyone's doing good. She's doing great. She's yeah. eating and up already. So I'm not going to worry about it. But I just thought it was so interesting. Yeah, that is they crazy. they were so different. I'm curious yeah. how it's going to be on the next time. I am too. I think, so guilts have this tendency to be like, what the hell just came out of my vagina? I must look. All, in my experience, all first time birthers are the same yeah yeah and i've had pigs that just go into a trance and just give birth mostly sows do that so they'll just lay down and just give birth one right after another and i think with both of my they were both gilts the so i have three week old babies and then i have the fresh newborn babies i think both of them the next time will just be like okay i know what's happening i'm just gonna give birth and lay down and that'll be super nice i won't have to go out there and check and make sure they're not laying on a piglet which both of them did great so right yeah 
once you have a good birther, you don't really have to worry as much anymore. And again, that's why I keep the lines I do. They're doing great. They're mixed with Hampshire, so they have stripes. They're stripy babies. <laughs> you got to post a picture. They're the cutest piglets. I mean, like, well, I bred this litter. I didn't um, account for cute piglets. Not that I would ever be above making choices based on cute piglets. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> I kind of did that with the Duroc Berkshire mix. Yeah. Trying for spotted piglets. I got zero spotted piglets. You got zero. Mm-hmm. It, approximately, but the, yes. Yeah, the ones you have are like, I mean, I can't. If they look Big like campshires with e- with ears. Because right now when they're born, their ears kind of like stick back. stick back to their head. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of hard to describe. But as they get older, those ears start to come loose flop of the down. head and flop wherever they're going to go or perk up yeah. if they're a breed with perky ears. I just hope, like, Matilda's ears, you guys, I don't think you realize. They're, like, one ear is, like, twice the size of her whole face. And I would say it's, like, the size of a crock pot. That's the yeah. perfect way to describe it. A giant <laughs> crock pot. A crock pot is what you chose. <laughs> well, I can't say a dish. It's bigger than a dish. <laughs> a crock pot. The first logical tool to make. It's, it's three and a half bananas long. <laughs> And one watermelon wide. Perfect. Yeah, you're right. A crock pot was way easier. I told you. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, you'll be posting pictures, yeah? I suppose. You I guess to. since you post the cutest. You posted your calf picture. Lady May. Yeah. Piglet pictures. But all of these are sold and spoken for. I have a waiting list of piglets because I've developed such a good I get repertoire, not to sound like cocky, but I've been doing this long enough that I have a good heritage line of piglets and people just seem to really, really want them. Yeah. That's incredible because that was not my story down here. Right. Different areas are going to require different buyers, I guess. Well, I mean, for me, I was like a first time piglet producer. A lot of people here still don't even know that we're farming. Um, Yeah. So that's part of it. The other part of it is I was a month late. So everybody here only runs piglets in the summer because, or pigs in general in the summer, because the winters are so harsh. So they are. Yeah. I think if I get into pigs again, I'm going to have to just like double, triple check that I'm having litters at that exact moment that they're needed otherwise. Which is hard because pigs, sows do better if they have two litters a year. Right. And then what do you do with the other ones? And I have no problem selling them. I'll just haul them up to you. Right. Yeah, that's the logical answer. That's here. what I'm going to do. You're doing a great job selling my animals. Yes. Yeah. You're welcome. I'm really good at that. <laughs> oh my so, God. what about you? Well, I didn't mean you could talk about your garden. How's your garden? I didn't mean you couldn't talk about anything. I just wanted to know about the piglets first. <laughs> well, I think the garden is like the same story for everyone. I'm harvesting a lot of green beans and zucchini and squash. Like when mm-hmm. I was on the phone with you today, my son and I picked, uh, I'm embarrassed to say how many. 15 squashes that we didn't know were existing that's what happens with squashes yeah yeah and this zucchini like just took off so i like to pick them when they're small so i can saute them and they just taste better when they're small and this one's gigantic so Mm -hmm. cool i'll just shred it and do bread yeah i have a chocolate zucchini bread recipe i'll send you okay it's bomb i'm looking forward to it muffins made out of it sitting in my little canister right now Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're their life. Because you can't, like, I know, I'm the same way where I want the small ones for the most part, but you have to be, like... On it. I mean, you have to be not doing nothing else other than zucchini <laughs> farming. I think you have to, like, go out there at 3 a.m. and, and just watch it. them. Exactly. Just, yeah. 
watch them grow because one minute they'll be like four inches long and the next they're like they're I mean they're the size of a crock pot <laughs> that's the crock pot size yeah or two crock pots <laughs> or even a couple crock pots <laughs> you need equipment to get it in the house I so we should get rid of the uh what do we use like miles let's start measuring things in crock pots, crock pots. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> metric system that's what it's called except that's crockpots, right? What? Literally everywhere else. Yeah, except U- U.S. We might as well just go with crockpot measurements because <laughs> miles makes just as much. It sense. really does. It really yeah. does. As long as we all agree on the crockpot system, it's fine. I'm gonna run for president, and that's going to be my platform. That's your platform. Yeah. Hey, you know what? If any other Americans are just like me, I will vote on literally anything other than our current measuring system. Yeah. Same. Because it's horrendous. <laughs> So what have you been doing, Stephanie? Oh, other than complaining about things I can't control. Like the metric system? Like the metric system. <laughs> um, my life has been a whirlwind. We've had like multiple sets of visitors through the property, um, house, town in general. And so it's been straight chaos that way. We've also done a ton of harvesting like everybody else and a lot of preserving which is good. I've got a couple rounds of pickles done, a couple rounds of dilly beans done. Oh, I did too. We've got hashtag yeah. preserve with milkmaids. Yes, preserve with milkmaids. I haven't posted my picture yet. Brian sent a bunch of beans through the freeze dryer, so that's good. I have 11 pounds of cucumber sitting on my counter right now that I still have to handle. Then I dehydrated a bunch of tomatoes too. So, oh, yes. Anyways, I love dehydrated um, tomatoes. I know you do, which is what kind of made me want to do it. And also I didn't have enough to do anything else with, you know, it was like too much yeah. to eat right away, but they'll be great on Sammy's or uh, pizza or something in the future this winter. So good. Yeah. We harvested all of our garlic too. By we, I mean, Brian mm-hmm. dug that, not me. <laughs> While I harvested other things, he did that. So Cold star for uh, Brian. if I think about it, I'll post a, he's the best. If I think about it, I'll post a video or a, a picture at least of our drying rack because I'm pretty proud of it and it's pretty brilliant. And so simple. We take two sawhorses out under our big tree and put them out there. And then I made this frame out of scrap wood that's like the it's like the size of a door, maybe. Maybe even well, it's a little wider than that, even. <laughs> it's 73 crock pots squared. <laughs> and um all I did we had um from fixing windows a while back, we had like a roll of screen, you know, like the window screen, right? Screen door. Uh, yeah, screen stuff. door stuff. And so yeah. I just stapled it around that frame and we've used it for a couple seasons now. And it is the best to just like throw your garlic on, throw your onions on. I've thrown herbs on there before. Um, some things you do have to watch cause the birds will get them, but Ooh. yeah, for the most part it does really well. And it's really nice to have it just sat out there under the tree. You just come back to it a few days later and it's cured and. Oh, that's um, awesome. But that, that's like one of my favorite $3 things we have. Yeah. So gets a lot of use uh, yeah totally our county fair is in town just starting yesterday so we yes uh hit that up yesterday which is pretty fun there wasn't a lot going on but there's a lot of really good food already so this is kind of the baby's first she went when she was two months old and then we didn't go at all last year because i didn't want it <laughs> i did not want it and then yeah this year is like her first which is fine because she's like super into it last year we yeah. just had to carry her around so yeah. We did that. Virgie's doing excellent. We have made some modifications to the parlor, which I'm really excited about. Nothing super radical. 
but which is crazy because every time I get on here, I talk about some insane thing I've done to the parlor, but I ordered like this wall hanging paper towel deal, a little hooky majig for the dip cups. And I have a dip cup on the goat station and then one on the cow station. Oh I'll yeah. Have to drag things back and forth, which is, I mean, it's just more sanitary anyways. And a hand sanitizer dispenser. So it all just hangs there, which is clean off the floor. Um, and then I bought a whole bunch of different brushes for my cleaning system on that dang Yeah, you did. So, oh, and then, um, this hasn't even happened yet, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. I bought a reptile incubator, as one does. Yes, you did. Mm -hmm. Yes, you did. Top farm equipment needs. Reptile incubator. So my, like, and I've mentioned this before, I will, again, this is another thing, like, once I get it fully dialed in, I think it's really worth an episode, because I think it'd be really helpful, but I'm doing this um, at-home, on-farm milk testing, right? So you need an incubator to do it. I was getting by with like this series of perfect cardboard boxes that it took me weeks to test out which (laughs) cardboard had the perfect thickness and like how open you leave the lid or do you leave it closed or do you do just a gap? Um, And a seed mat, a heating seed mat. Yeah. Which you know what, it worked fine, but um, it was a mess. It was a hot mess and not accurate. So. And then things spilled too, right? Oh yeah, it was, yeah, it was horrendous because if seed mat... The box wasn't, it was perfect, like temperature holder, but not the perfect width and length. So then the mat was all crinkled in there, which means the samples tilted. And yes, it was less than ideal. But the mach- right. the incubator that you can get at like the lab equipment place, it's like three or $400 and I'm so cheap. <laughs> so anyway, so like, I'll just get by on this. Well, then I had the idea to just type in like incubator and see what came up. And the first, like, several things were reptile incubators. It's like, well, what, you know, what functions do they have? What's the difference? What do they actually do? And so it was, like, under half the cost to get one of those. I think it was, like, 155. Right. And then. So it's a branding issue. It really is. You just have to get into reptiles. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So that thing is arriving tonight, which means I should be testing Virgie's milk tomorrow. And hopefully I've gone through this machine a thousand times. And I've tried plugging this in and seeing what happens. I've tried plugging that in and seeing what happens. I've tried rinsing this, but not that. And drying this, but not that. And finally, I think I have it solved. <laughs> finally, I have yes. figured out how to keep all of the water to where it dries 100% between one milking and the next. Yeah. Nobody else seems to have the same problem, but what do I know? Anyhow, so we'll <laughs> see. So hopefully next time we talk, I've tested the milk and we're looking really good. And things are rosy. And what else? That's it. That's it. Chaos. Other than that, just the average chaos. Yeah. It's a su- end of summer, so everyone is mm-hmm. going through that, I think. Yeah. What are we talking about this week? Well, we're going to hit our preservation series again um, because it's, as we've talked about, everybody's harvesting and canning. It's high time we talked about canning. It's just it's just time. I'm putting it's my foot down. It's just time. Yeah. She made me do this episode. We have yeah. to. <laughs> I mean, Tara's kicking and screaming. I don't want to, but <laughs> here not, we are. That's not But true. I, I convinced her to let me do history first. <laughs> yeah, I did the whole outline. Tara's like, but but where's the history? <laughs> I don't know. You do it. <laughs> Tara's like all, all about the history life. Yeah. So if you haven't checked out our first episode on preserving, do check that one out. We cover a little bit and then I give a tiny bit of history on a little bit of canning in that one, which is super fun for me. So this is a brief timeline of canning, which can be found on the USD website. We will have that linked in our show notes. So 1795, Napoleon offers a reward of 
12,000 francs for in, an invention of a new food preservation method. Do we still have these sort of competitions? I wish we did because we'd covered the chicken one. Yes, that's what I mean. Like, it seems like th- there is nothing more old timey than a national competition for progress. Yes. If you want to solve something, offer 12,000 francs, okay? That's all, that's you, all I'm saying. I mean, or 17 crockpots. <laughs> I'm in. I am I, in. I'm also in. <laughs> I would love to be challenged this way because I think I would hyper focus and do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Yep. I so, would just stop and start building shelves for crockpots. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what one does. <laughs> Sorry. I love that. So, Go ahead. It's so cool. And then in 1809, so that's quite a bit of difference. What? 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years. You're adorable. <laughs> I just let you work that one through. <laughs> she knew the answer. She uh-huh. didn't tell me. I just watched. Okay. That's 14 years, so... Do you think that they got interest on the 12,000 francs? I don't know. But <laughs> interest? interest? What was the inflation rate? <laughs> yeah, I would like to know as well. But <laughs> oh 1809, Nicholas Appert wins this award. He invented this canning technique. 1810, Peter Durand creates this tin canister, which you all know and love, <laughs> on the shelf today. <laughs> so that's where it originally comes from is Mr. Peter Durand. And then in 1812, Robert Ayers opens the first American cannery. By 1858, John L. Mason patents the mason jar. So that's why we call it the mason jar, guys. Because of, of John L. Mason. John L. Mason. I didn't know that. I learned that today. Mm-hmm. So by 1884, the Ball Corporation starts manufacturing glass jars specifically for home canning. 1903, Alexander H. Kerr. Is that how you say? Kerr? Kerr. Canning yeah. jars? Kerr. They create a home canning supply business, and originally the Kerr company was making, like, glass products. Oh, okay. So that's why they moved to making, like, home canning supplies. So that's, like, a 100 years later. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, in one respect, it's amazing it took that long, and the other respect, it's amazing it went that quick. Right. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about, because I don't think canning is that old compared to other preservation methods. It's not at all. It's not yeah. at all. And then 1914, World War One begins. Also in 1914, the Smith-Lever Act creates the official position of the home demonstration agent. So that would be like your local extension agent. And they would teach people how to can. Oh, demonstration. Yeah, right. 1915, Kerr is granted a patent for his two-piece disposable metal canning lid. So Kerr was the original creator of that two-piece that we all know and love now. Didn't know that as either. I would think it would be coming from Ball, but Kerr actually did a lot of progress on the home canning front Mm -hmm. yeah 1917 the usda determines that pressure canning is the only safe way to preserve low acid foods which we will talk about later in the episode by 1931 12 people including children die after consuming improperly canned food at a dinner party in north dakota oh wow yeah in 1939 world war ii begins and then 1943 this is the peak in home canning in the u.s more than 4 billion cans and jars were processed then. I'd be curious. I guess maybe you're going to get to I'd be curious about like per capita and what that is now. I mean, I'm sure it's dismal, yeah. but be interesting. I didn't do that. Come on, Tara. <laughs> By 1945, there's a huge decline of home canning due to the availability of home refrigeration. This is when home refrigeration really took off. So again, 1945 isn't that long ago. That's no. like two people ago. Two people ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I measure everything. <laughs> 
We measure any sort of length, distance, or area in crockpots, and time is measured via peoples. You heard it here first. <laughs> Again, this is how I will run on my presidential platform. <laughs> so 1970, DIY movements led to a resurgence of home canning and pressure canning. I don't know why in 1970, but... Yeah, if you're from 1970, tell me why. If you're from, if you're from one people ago, one people ago. But 1977, holy shit, buckle up, this is scary. This is the largest recorded outbreak of botulism. So 59 were sick after eating salsa that was prepared with canned jalapenos from a restaurant. So the canned jalapenos were the cause of the botulism in this restaurant. Wow, so scary, so scary. Yeah. By 1988, the USDA publishes its first complete guide to home canning. Still around today. It is. I mean, and it's updated. been updated. Yes. Yeah. Updated. We'll talk about that later, too. In 1993, the FDA publishes its first comprehensive food code. And by 2005, a home survey found that up to 57% of home canners use practices that are deemed unsafe according to the USDA standards. And so when people say, my granny used to always do it this way... <laughs> I have a whole note about that later. (laughs) Right. Please understand that canning is not that old and we've learned so much from now to then. Like you don't be like, okay, my grandpa used to bleed out when he was sick. Yeah. Do you know what bleeding out is? Like they drain the illness by literally draining your blood. We don't do that now because we know better. Like it doesn't matter that your granny did that and did get sick. You could potentially die of botulism. So maybe don't. Right. Weird. Just going to say that. Weird. Science is weird. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, that's crazy that, yeah, it's, I mean, can't, as we're going to see, canning is definitely one of those things you have to keep up on the times. And that is what's cool about living in the nows, the, the, the current now peoples is the that, current people times. that, um, you know, like we get to benefit from the years of research before us and make a choices. <laughs> so yeah. I recently saw that the USDA, whatever home preservation people said that canning elderberry syrup is no longer considered safe oh interesting yeah and a lot of people are upset about that but you have to realize that they do these studies yeah so sometimes they really do know what they're talking about i don't know just be cognizant that there are changes constantly totally so what (laughs) let's take it back a notch what is canning so canning is basically just preserving a food product inside of a glass jar in such a way that makes it shelf stable So there's two different types of safe and approved canning methods. There's water bath canning for high acid foods. We'll go into that in detail. And then there's pressure canning for low acid foods. Again, we'll go into that in detail. So inversion canning is not an approved safe method. Don't do it. So the only reason I'm mentioning inversion canning at all, there's a local person who cans and sells cans that way. And it gives me like the massive heebie-jeebies. Inversion canning is like an old school style of canning in which you put hot food into a jar, put a lid on, and turn the jar upside down. And so it's heating up that lid to pop. To pop it. To seal. Right. Yeah. Not safe. It gets no further cooking other than that. Um, so what I'll tell you is I just mentioned inversion canning here because it's something that I... Um, I'm aware of. I've also heard of people just setting on the counter and waiting for the heat to drop it enough to seal. Um, I've heard of people trying to do this in the oven, all sorts of things. At the end of the day, you'll find things on blogs. You'll find things from grandmothers or people who have done this for way longer than you've been alive. (laughs) 
water bath canning and pressure canning are the only two options. So yes, that's that. There's a lot of pros and cons to canning in general when you look at options of preservation. So a pro is that you are preserving food. And in my household, the biggest reason is to get out of the freezer. Things like green beans are great. I actually prefer them if they're in the freezer, not in cans, as far as eating them later. Yeah. Problem being is when you are very limited on freezer space, sometimes they got to come out. So it helps a lot with freezer space, makes shelf stable products. Also, canning provides an amazing opportunity to make new products that you've never even heard of before. So frequently I'll like, okay, I've got cucumbers, look in the back of my book, go to cucumbers. And there's a whole list of cucumber recipes that I've never even heard of. Styles of pickles that like, that sounds ridiculous. I've never even heard of such a thing, right? right? You couldn't buy this anywhere if you had a gun to your head, but you could make it in your own kitchen and have a unique flavor that you've never had. You can't find it anywhere else. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. And it also, when you do have a big harvest, it, it kind of pushes you to figure out new ways to do things, right? That's one thing I do appreciate about canning. The other good thing about canning is um, in the grand scheme of things, it does require a relatively little amount of equipment and the equipment that you do get lasts for either a long time or lifetime, depending on what you end up with. Yeah. So the cons are, is that it is time consuming until you kind of get the flow down. When, especially when you're starting, you shouldn't be doing anything else but canning. That way you have space to read the directions. You're not stepping away from it at any point. As you get better at it, you can start incorporating the other tasks in your kitchen with it to some degree. So it does get better. Just keep that in mind if you're starting thinking this takes an insane amount of time. It does get a little better, but at the end of the day, food preservation does take work. The, my least favorite part of it, and I just figured out the turkey fryer situation in the garage, so that helps yeah. for the pressure canner, but it does heat up your house like crazy if you don't have an outside option. And you're typically always preserving at least garden stuff in the end of summer when it's the hottest out. So it just is what it is. It's part of it. You take it, you take it when you can. And we don't have yeah. any AC here. So no, Yeah. but some people that I know try to do it on the cooler days. Like mm-hmm. even in August we've had yesterday, it was like 60 degrees, which was amazing. Wow. So some people just try to get everything done. They can mm-hmm. on that day totally. or some people will freeze what they need in a batch in a Ziploc bag. Yeah. The problem is I always put it off and I never end up canning it yeah. until it's like freezer burnt. So, right. And then it's lost so, in your freezer forever and forever. Yeah. But that is an option. And a lot of people will do that if they have a, like a small harvest, they'll throw it in the freezer and then keep checks. Adding to it. Yeah. Certain things freeze and then pull out and can while certain things do not. So if you're thinking yeah. about doing that, just check. So as Tara mentioned in the history part of it, you can't talk about canning without talking about bacteria. And I mean, that really is the battle with food preservation, no matter the method. So anyhow, in canning in particular, any bacteria could pose a problem. But the one we talk about the most in terms of canning is Clostridium botulinum, which the botulinum toxin gives you botulism. So they're all words that we use to kind of describe the same bacteria and process. So it's anywhere from potentially deadly, like very hospitalized to just deadly. Um, It's a very bad one to play with. And it's also impossible to detect like, you uh, can't just smell a no. jar and tell if it has botulism. Correct. Yeah. So it's it's a quiet, quiet little guy that hangs out. So botulism's sneaky, everywhere. Sneaky. Mm-hmm. Botulism spores are all over your produce that you eat all of the time, which is crazy that they're just allowed they're just allowed to be there. 
But when botulism or botulinum is in the spore form, it doesn't harm you. It can't harm you. It's like um, contained in a little shell. So the problem is, is when you have a spore and you give it the exact right conditions to thrive, i.e. moist, low acid, a temperature between 40 and 120, which is most people's households, and then oxygen less than 2%. When all of those conditions are right, C. botulinum produces vegetative cells that multiply very rapidly, and that's when they produce the deadly toxin. And that can happen in as little as three days. So That's so fast. When we're talking about preserving food, why bother if you're getting two days out of it? You know what I mean? So yeah, it happens quickly. So the only way to avoid botulism as a health risk is to, you just have to follow the reliable resources and learn how to do it correctly. That's the only way. And the reason that they are so good at knowing what is safe and what isn't safe is they literally hire people just to test out recipes. Yeah. And then they test the food after a certain amount of time. Right. So it's actually really fascinating. Like that job would be so fun. And also, and also those so people, much pressure. <laughs> those people would never eat at barbecues. Could you imagine? No, no, I don't. I would never. I don't again. eat anybody else's canned food. I'm so bad. I about don't it. either. Mm-hmm. I'm so bad about it too. But also I would eat yours. Right. Yeah. There are, there are a handful. I eat my <laughs> grandparents, but yeah, you've got to be so careful. Yeah. So. You can't talk about canning without talking about acidity. That's a hard word to say. Acidity. 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 To avoid botulism, you need to know what the acidity of your food is in order to decide which method of canning is appropriate. What I like about my ball canning book is that it gives you a list of foods and if it's high or low acidity. Yeah, there's a list. And then any recipe you find in one of the reliable sources will tell you too as well, like what to do exactly. with it. So it's not, right. yeah, it's important to know those things, but you don't, I mean, you don't have to memorize. Don't go memorize what the pH of green beans is. That's <laughs> that a... sounds like a country song. <laughs> don't go memorize the pH of cucumbers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The thing about acidity is that it destroys botulinum. And if the acidity is high enough, a water bath canner will do. But if not, you need to use a pressure canning method. I am in this group that instead of using a pressure canner, I have to get out of this group, by the way, they will just water bath double the time <laughs> of something. <laughs> Try again. Yeah. <laughs> that There's a lot of whole ass problems with mm-hmm. that. Um, don't do that, okay? Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Use a pressure canner for things that need a pressure canner. Thank you. <laughs> this has been a PSA with Milk Maze. Seriously? <laughs> this whole episode is. People are going to hate us or love us. So acid is natural in most fruits, which is really fascinating. Or it can be added in the case of vinegar to pickles. You'll notice a lot of water bath canned recipes call for the addition of lemon juice. That is usually to drop the pH a little bit, just to be sure. Yeah. Low acid foods have a pH higher than 4.6. This includes meats and vegetables, for example. So the thing about tomatoes is that typically they're thought to be acidic, But there's like a billion varieties of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Some varieties are known to have a higher pH than 4.6. So it is recommended that an acid be added to ensure that the pH is in fact lower than 4.6. So most cases, you just use lemon juice or citric acid. And side note, it kind of reminds me of cheese because you don't technically have to add citric acid to a lot of raw milk recipes for cheese. However, I do just to cover all my bases. And same thing with like salsas and everything. You're not going to hurt the recipe no. by adding these things. No, not at all. And you need to do it just to be safe. Unless 
You want to take every tomato you plant a can all the way to a lab and ask them to test the pH. Seriously, because there's a million varieties mm-hmm. and like heirloom varieties that you plant because they're fun. It changes so much between each tomato. Yeah, and that's been an evolution. Like back in the day, we only had these tomatoes that were all acidic. And now as we're breeding more varieties and getting more just varieties that do well for massive growth or for shelf stable or whatever, the acidity is changing, which is interesting that our quest for better tomatoes has like, this is what's happening. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't. No. You know, it's just an interesting side effect that is there. We didn't think of. Yeah. Yeah. Important to note. It is. So it is okay to do this with tomatoes and not other low acid foods because most tomatoes are in fact acidic. Ones that are over the limit are barely so. So just add your acid and still be safe with a water bath can. Yeah, totally. So altitude adjustments are another really important thing to know about canning. And I promise we're going to get to like the actual process of canning, but these are just general things that you need to know before you even get started. So your altitude um, affects a lot. So water boils at a lower temperature as altitude increases. So which temperature is critical when it comes to the destruction of bacteria. So if you and I, even you and I boil things differently, we're going to have different temperatures, even though it's actually boiling. So canning recipes are typically written from sea level to a thousand foot. And you just kind of, if you see a recipe, you assume that's where it's written. That way everything's just standard. So if you're above that, you do need to make proper modifications. So there's charts in most any canning book that you would get. I would say if there's not a chart and if, if your book does not explain this, throw it away because that seems to me like unsafe if they're not making altitude adjustments. Our blue book that Tara and I both use, the ball blue book, it has all your altitude adjustments in the beginning. Altitude adjustments are also something you can find easily online too. We're not going to go through them because it's like very specific for each and every altitude. But for water bath canning, your adjustment is going to be adding more time. So for me, at my altitude of 6,200 feet, I have to add 15 minutes to the time. So if a recipe says process in a water bath canner for 10 minutes, I have to add 15 minutes to it. So all of my 10 minute recipes are now 25 minutes. Yeah. That's how you accommodate for the lower temperature of boiling water here. For pressure canning, you'll increase the pressure at which you can. So for us, it's 14 or 15 PSI. So not a big deal. It's just one of those things. You just need to know that that exists and you need to know to do it. Um, You can Google your altitude, call your extension office, any of those things. There's apps for finding your altitude. Like you can figure that out if you don't know it. Um, Yeah. Chances are good that like your nearest city will be close enough to your altitude. Usually the range is like, a thousand to two thousand foot, right? Yeah, because I think I'm in the six to eight thousand foot range. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your elevation there? Like four thousand something? Yeah, it's four thousand two hundred. I, I thought think. I remembered that from when I was nine. Right. Why? Can't remember literally <laughs> Cause, anything else. Cause numbers. Oh my gosh. Recipes, we've already kind of jumped in on this a couple times, but don't ever do a canning recipe from a blog. I don't care how cool the lady is writing the blog, just don't do it. They, the bloggers are not taking their products in to labs. They're just not, they're just not no. doing that. And you could say, well, she hasn't died yet and she feeds it to her family. You don't know that. She may just be putting it up on her blog and not feeding it to her family. And also she may have just gotten lucky. So just don't do it. Don't use grandma's old cookbooks. They're cool to flip through. And one of my favorite books I have uh, is like this old um, like household encyclopedia, right? There's, there's yeah. a name for it. But it has everything from like 
how to keep your kitchen sanitary to like what to deal with if, if somebody in your household comes down with tuberculosis. And it's like this whole oh, like good. very, yes. but everything is so antiquated. And I love looking back on that. That's yeah. not where I get my canning advice because as we've said, things have changed a lot since then. So just yeah. because it's written in a book doesn't mean it's gospel. Um, they also knew so little about canning then. Yeah. We're just learning so much more now. So, right. Yeah. Also the way grandma always did it didn't, doesn't fly anymore. We've, we've gone over that. You just need to do reliable resources. So one of the best places to start is get yourself a ball canning book. These books are kind of look more like, well, you can get like a hardcover, like true ball book if you want, but most of them are like, they almost look like a magazine. They're kind of like, yeah. A, yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. they're frequently sold. I mean, I bought mine a couple years ago, like in the canning supply section of my hardware right. store. So they're yeah. frequently really easy to get a hold of. I do have a link in the show notes for that book on Amazon. And I I did link everything we're gonna talk about from Amazon. I know Amazon's problematic. I'm not spending hours scouring the web to find good sources for all of these things. Click on the Amazon link, get an idea of what I'm talking about, and then go find it yourself if you don't want to yeah. buy it on Amazon. We also hate Jeff Bezos, right. so don't worry about it. But I just it's just easy to get like the pictures and stuff out to you guys of this is what I'm talking about or what have you. So right. anyway. I didn't send a rocket ship up there. <laughs> right. It's not my problem. Right. Good golly. So that ball canning book is like the perfect starter. You can use that for years, honestly, and not absolutely not go through everything. Yeah. If you are cheap and don't want to get the book, if you haven't ordered it yet and you wanted to can something today, if the hardware store is sold out of those, you can go to freshpreserving.com, which is Ball's website. And they have a lot of recipes on there that's free. You can access them right then and there. Correct. Yeah. And so Ball's just a trusted source. They do all of the testing. And then a lot, kind of a, like a last final note on recipes is recipes are written and tested exactly how they're written. So unfortunately, as tempting as it is, that means you should not double the recipe. I know that sounds bizarre because all the ingredients are still there. Oh, I doubled it exactly. The ratios are still there. That's not how these were tested. Things don't get mixed um, 100% universally. They just don't. So one jar may be containing more acid than the next jar because it got more vinegar than the next jar. And also like your canner can only hold so much anyway. So just slow it down, do it one at a time and you'll be fine. Do and that. it's actually amazing how much produce you will go through. Yeah. Even for a small recipe, I'm always amazed that I'm, I'll just do like five small pints of something and I used all my green beans up. Mm-hmm. So don't be discouraged just because you're getting a little, that's, you're still adding to your stock. That's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And like, I mean, like the pickle recipe I'm going to do later this afternoon or tomorrow is like calls for eight pounds of cucumbers. So it yeah. does, it does go fast. So it really does. Yeah. It'll be good. Um, a last final note on safety because we've kind of been a giant bummer so far. <laughs> We're good at that, aren't we? We really are. Yeah. What do we hate about farming? Why is canning awful? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. So we started off with a safety nod to scare you, but just so you know what you're dealing with before you even start. I promise if you follow the directions from reliable resources and follow the recipes from reliable resources, you're going to be just fine. It's going to be just fine. If you are scared of botulism, as you probably should be, but if you're not comfortable working, terrified of it. Right, if you're not comfortable working with it yet, just start with a high acid food. Start with a fruit of some sorts or pickles, pickles. better yet, because you're literally going to chug acid straight into those pickle jars. So. It's whole ass acid. Right. 
So start with that. It's like very low risk and it gets you comfortable with the process. It gets you learning the flow from cleaning the kitchen to wiping the rims, to packing the jars, the whole nine yards. Start with that. Get comfortable with it. So yeah. you you will build up to where you're like, oh, I can I did I did all of that. I can do this. You can do it. Yeah. So equipment. This is something that a lot of people struggle. They think that it requires a lot of you. And here's the deal. It really doesn't. Water bath canners are usually pretty easy to get a hold of and cheap, and you can usually find them at secondhand stores or what whatnot. Pressure canners, I'd go on a limb and say that it's probably best to buy new because they can be dangerous. So let's get into that. You'll need jars, lids, and rings. Mason jars are the best. They're available in half pint, pint, quarter, and half gallon. So the half gallons are only safe for certain juices. The reason I have a ton of half gallons is because I have a milk cow. Right, same. And that's literally all we use it for. Yep. I've never even made juices. Well, I've made juices, but we just drink them. I've never canned juices. Yeah. So I'm going to try one thing in the half gallon jars is preserving eggs like to make them shelf stable in yeah. lime, the lime water solution. Yes, but that's, that's not what I'm canning, use. just to be clear. It's not canning right? at all. So I don't think I've ever seen anything canned in the half gallon jars personally. So. I, th- I really honestly, off the top of my head, think it's just apple and grape juice, but don't quote me on that specific piece. But it's only Correct. certain juices, not even all juices. Yeah. So Yeah, so when you're looking at that, don't think that you can just put a whole bunch of stuff in there because mm-hmm. you have 12 kids. It yeah. doesn't work like that. Bigger's not always better. Exactly. We always look for ball or cur jars yeah. since they've been around so long and they're tested. And I've had really good luck with both of these. Me too. So that's exactly why we stick with it. And I like the cur jars just because you don't see them as much. I don't personally. Yeah. Um, so I have to be unique and different. Well, I think they merged. You know, they did. Mm-hmm. I'm almost positive. I didn't know that. Cur and ball yeah. are the same, but it could be wrong. Yeah. We'll have to look into that. We'll have an update. <laughs> Again, don't quote me on that. <laughs> don't quote me on that either. So there are a lot of new jars coming out with like COVID shortages because jar, like ball and cur mason jars, they just couldn't keep up with production for so long. Um, and also people panicked and bought everything. Panic bought. Right. Yeah. Um, so like I was just in a hardware store the other day and saw some brand that I've never seen before, but they're marketed as canning jars. And they were like, there was like two cur jar or ball jar, whatever they were packages sitting there. Hmm. But this other brand was there. So I don't want to, I don't want to say anything about them. I'm not up until this year, Tara and I have only had the chance to buy ball and cur mason jars. It's like all yeah. that's ever really been on the market. These new ones may be just fine. And you know, like if there are shortages, more power to them for coming up with another option. Just maybe if you're going to get those ones, do a little research, give them a check over, use your, use your brain. So hmm. if you tried them out, let us know. Yeah, I would love to, I would love to know. You should be using a new lid. So this is a lid that's like tin and then it has a rubber seal on the, where it would meet on the jar. Yep. And you have to use a new one each and every single time. I've never ever used a reusable lids. They look super cool, but I don't trust them personally. The Yeah. And I, um, I know they exist. I watched one review from a blogger that I typically like and it wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't great. Yeah. So I've never bought them. They may... But there's people out there who love them. I also think that the people that love them are being paid to love them. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're sponsored by these. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know. If you've used them, please let us know and you're not getting paid by them. I'd love to right. know. Right. And I mean, well, I, I want to try them at some point just to see. But yeah. So just know that they do exist. Um, I ran into this problem the other day. I have the ball tops. I buy them in the winter because I can never mm-hmm. get them when you need them. So I buy a ton every time I see them. Yeah. They're not that expensive. So I'll just buy a couple handfuls of them Yeah. in the winter when nobody's buying them. Anyway, the ball ones, you can't boil anymore. 
Did you know that? Right. Yes. It's not recommended. We're back in the day, not very long ago. The protocol was to boil the lids. So yeah, you'll just, here's the thing about lids, depending on what lids you end up with, you will want to check your, the manufacturers, like they'll tell you what's doing yeah. on the back of the package. Read the directions. Because mm-hmm. there are enough of them that are just a little different. The Kerr and the Ball ones are different. I read the directions the other day. Yeah. And I almost threw the Ball ones into the boiling water. And then I remembered not to do that. Mm-hmm. So just a re- really quick note on the tops. Yeah. So jars can last years, literally years and years and years. If you're very careful with handling them and you want to inspect them every year for any chips or cracks. I noticed with my half gallon jars, I'm getting a lot of cracks in them because with milk, you're just varying the temperature a lot. Like you want to cool down the milk as fast Mm -hmm. as you can. So I'll get a lot of chips and cracks in there. And that's, what is that called when you change the temperature? It's like tempering or something. I don't remember, but so when you change the heat of something very fast, it's going to crack with glass. Yeah. So that's why you check it for chips and cracks. But if you're canning properly, you should be addressing that issue. Yeah. And the canning jars you use really twice a year, right? So you'll use it, you'll be handling it when you're filling it and actively canning, and then you'll be handling it when you're eating it, which will or make cleaning it. it. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So whereas the milk jars, you probably use that same exact jar every single week, at least once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they just, they just get beat up a little bit more when they're used as milking containers. So water bath canners, this is what I'm personally comfortable with the most. I'm not a huge pressure canner person because A, I have a glass top and B, I don't want to be blown up. (laughs) (laughs) Don't scare the people. I'm sorry. (laughs) Stephanie's really good at it. So I'm going to cover the water bath canner. So these are usually made (laughs) of aluminum. Wow. (laughs) These are usually made of aluminum. (laughs) Aluminium. Right. Or porcelain covered steel. Stephanie just recently upgraded to stainless steel. Mine is stainless steel because it was a birthday present for my mom. Thank you, mom. If using an electric range, you should have like a flat bottomed pot. And then you want a flat or ridged bottom for working with gas ranges. So you need to know what you're working with. You, I have an electric glass top. What do you have, Stephanie? I have electric coils. Okay. So. That's definitely preferred. You can't pressure can on a glass top. Right. You'll die. (laughs) You'll blow up, you mean? Yeah, everything will blow up. (laughs) So with a water bath canner, you want to make sure the canner is no more than four inches in diameter larger than the burner. Otherwise, you won't have like a safe guaranteed heating. So these have removable wire racks and mine fashions on top of it so I can fill it and then dunk it in there. So Yeah, it kind of comes up and rests on top of the sides. It rests on the top, yeah. And that's pretty normal. You kind of have to struggle to not find one of those. It's pretty handy too. Mm-hmm. And then it has a nice fitted lid too. Yes. So you have to have that. Y- yes, you do. You need to have a pot that can hold one inch of water above your jars at a royal, roiling, rolling boil. I'm having correct today. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, like water bath canners are basically just glorified pots for the most part. They are. The specific part about them is the, is the rack. So, um, and the reason for the rack is because you don't want glass jars sitting on that direct heat. Correct. Yep. You want them elevated just, I mean, even just a skosh will do. So pressure canners I'll talk about since I have not blown anything up and plan not to. (laughs) So first off, a pressure canner and a pressure cooker are not the same thing. You will not be pressure canning in your instant pot. That is, you will not be doing that. Do not do that. I guess a side note, I have no 
uh, experience in this, but the Instant Pot Company has made one that is made for pressure canning. Yeah, and um, Ball Kerr, one of the two, they have an electric pressure canner as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's specifically tested for can- like. But it's just for canning, not cooking. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So these are two different. People do get those confused because pressure canner, pressure cooker, and they do operate similarly in the way that they have the locking lid, they build pressure, but they are very much so different things and operate in very different ways. So the pressure canner in general is typically a more heavy duty, larger pot. They most common have a screw on locking lid. However, there are some that have clamp down things mm-hmm. all around the sides of them. Um, old school ones have the clamp down and then really expensive ones currently have the clamp down so the all-american cookers like the um cadillac of the pressure cooker world or sorry not cooker see here i go doing it pressure canners (laughs) and you'll see they just look very different they have a like all the way around them they have these locking things that go down and lock over the lid so anyhow some people do have those they are the more expensive option so um they're not nearly as common i would say Pressure canners also come with a jar rack. They do look different than the water bath canner. They're typically just like a disc that goes in the bottom. They have a rubber gasket that goes on the inside of the lid, a dial or a weighted gauge, an automatic automatic vent or cover lock, a vent port, or also known as a steam port. Um, and then that's to be closed with a counterweight or a weighted gauge. You'll get one of those. And then also have a safety fuse. So the safety fuse is kind of a new thing. Not new, new, but like, Maybe in the 70s, like pre. So if you get one at a garage sale, make sure it has that safety port or the safety fuse. And we'll talk about that in a bit. So pressure canners are not something that you DIY. Whereas you could get by with, if you just have a regular large pot for for water bath canning, you could do that. Pressure canners, you just, if you're going to do it, you just have to buy that tool. It is what it is. And the one that I have, so I have a Presto. It's the non-expensive version. And it's like 125 bucks, maybe 150 bucks, not cheap, but not, I mean, not a huge investment either, especially because it should last my lifetime really. Whereas like the all American ones are three, four, 500, depending on what size you're looking at. So it is highly recommended that you do get your pressure canner tested every year. Usually you just take the lid in. I take both just so you're sure, because it probably depends on your extension office, but the extension office typically does pressure canner testing, gauge testing. So because this is a gauge, it can go off, right? Or you've got a lot of working pieces here. And if you're leaking pressure anywhere, or if your gauge is just misdialed, it's not, not dialed in, you need to test that. And an annual test is a good way to do that. So our extension office, we can bring it in any day of the week, all year long. Right. Some extension offices do like pressure canner days or yeah. whatever in the, you know, in the spring or what have you. So just call your extension office, see what your options are. Mark it on the calendar if it's only certain days out of the year or what have you. Also, um, regular inspection of all of the parts is a good idea. You just want to double check your gaskets. Each pressure canner typically tells you like it's a good idea to replace your gasket yearly or every two years or every so many batches just because that that is what's holding your seal. And so if you're leaking there, if you've got a crack in your gasket, which most of them now are a lot longer lasting than they used to be. They're self-lubricated, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards. They do last for quite a while, but that's just right. something to keep an eye on. So basically how a pressure canner works is that the unit allows pressure to accumulate inside of the pot and steam fills the pot. 
So the increased pressure of the steam makes the temperature actually higher than it would be possible if you didn't have pressure. So um, like up to 240 degrees, right? So depending on your altitude and where you live, water typically boils at what, 200 to like 212, depending on where you live. And with pressure, you can get it up to 240. So botulism or botulinum will not die at 210 or 212 or 200, right. whatever, but it will die at 240. So that's why pressure canning is what it is. Now, anytime you do build pressure in a controlled unit like that, there is risk of injuries. There's horror stories out there about canners exploding and blowing people's faces. And yes, like it's one of those things that you just like see things often enough. And maybe I'm just a cynic and completely lost faith in humanity, but I'm like, what could they have possibly been doing correct in that situation to make that happen? Because if you just get your stuff tested and follow all of the directions and double check on the important steps, right? Like double check that your lid is actually fastened. Not that it's cattywampus. Like Make sure you're set before you throw pressure to it. You're going to be fine. Other thing, so like any pressure canner you get is going to come with directions. They're all going to be different. I can't tell you exactly how to use yours because I do not have yours. I know every season I pull the pressure canner out and I read those directions every time for the first time in the season because it's just a good practice to remember how this particular canner actually works. Correct. Yeah. I, I pressure can all season long. I actually can a lot, pressure can a lot in the winter too, because I'll do broth all winter in particular. So I use it probably more frequently than the average Joe, but it just is a good idea to brush up on the manufacturer's directions. And again, do it by the directions and you will be just fine. The newer ones do have the safety vent, as I mentioned. And what that safety vent is, is at the top of the lid, there's this little rubber plug and it's tiny. It's like, smaller than your pinky probably that thing is designed that if the pressure gets built out of control say you turn on turn the heat on to high and go to town or forget about it take a nap what have you all tragic things by the way don't do any of that while pressure canning but the thought is is that safety button will blow and release the steam before the top would blow does that make sense yeah that's fancy so if your canner has that and you're following all the directions you really have no reason to worry it just is one thing that you need to pay attention to and no different than paying attention to bacteria when you're canning that's correct i mean that just is that just is what it is so canning gadgets there's a lot of different things out there a jar lifter is going to help you out that's just this mechanism that you lift the jars from the top these jars get super 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 hot so that helps a lid holder I have like a little metal one that the lids go in. Less important now that you don't boil your lids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of confusing that they still have that in the packet because you're not needing it really if you're not boiling the lids. And some lids you still do boil. So I, so. yeah, some lids you do still boil. I still use mine in the soapy water as a way that like. You're not touching it. Yeah. And they don't get like stuck down in the drain or like yeah. plastered against the sink and you're like trying to get your fingernails under there to pry it up you know how that happens like when the water like suctions it kind of so i still find mine very handy Mm -hmm. i still use it don't get rid of that magnet stick you use that or yes or the other options a magnet stick um and that that's just a plastic stick with a magnet on the end some of this stuff (laughs) is so ridiculous but it does help you get a hold of the lids and use them and keep your hands clean and everything else you're going to need some version of a headspace measurer and we'll go over more specific. Measurer? Measurer. Let's talk about that for a second. So measurer? I, I say measure, right, which I had no I idea was incorrect measurer. until yeah. like two or three years ago. Measure. Which is like amazing that I've made it this far in life saying that incorrectly. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> um, <laughs> measure. <laughs> uh, 
So headspace is the amount of empty space at the top of the jar. And you just need to know what that measurement is for your particular recipe. There's little plastic sticks that you can stick in your jar and measure it that way. That's what I have. And it's also to get the air bubbles out. Yeah. One side is to measure and then the other side is to get the air bubbles out around the jar. Right. When you inside the jar. Inside the jar. Yeah. Yeah. My, I have a funnel, um, which you'll need funnels as well. I have a funnel that is stainless steel on the funnel part of it. And then around the base of the outside, there's a plastic part that um, doesn't touch any of the food, but it has the measurements for headspace on it. So it, Mm -hmm. the way it sits, it goes down below the head of the jar. Hmm. I love that because then I can measure as I'm pouring, as opposed to pouring, setting that down, get the stick, check the measurement. Right. Does that make sense? That's smart. I love that thing. It's the exact, I could not find the exact one I have on Amazon. I linked one in the show notes that's similar. But if you want to go find a stainless steel one, I highly recommend it. I've had it for years. I don't remember where I even got it. Regardless, you need funnels. That's just part of canning too for most things. You're going to need a bunch of clean metallic utensils, whatever it is that you're doing, depending. So if you are ladling acid over the jars, get yourself a nice ladle that's ideally not metallic, which sucks because everything I have is metal. Yeah. Novelty things like cherry pitters and apple peelers and cores are super handy. These are not mandatory pieces of equipment, but I did include the links as well. I was trying to think, do you have any other little gadgety things you use for canning? I can't think of anything. Oh, I have an Alexa, so I can set the timer on her. <laughs> That's, set so, the canning timer for 10 minutes. If you need a timer. Oh my gosh. Go buy yourself an Alexa. As we just said that we hate Jeff Bezos. Right? He's literally in our houses. He's, he's here. Welcome. He's here. Most of the things I just listed, um, the jar lifter, the lid holder, magnet grabber, um, headspace major. They sell those in little like $15, $20 kits, or maybe 10 to $20 kits Yeah, that have all those little gadgety things. And when I store my canner, like my water bath canner, all that stuff just gets stored in there. I just use it mm-hmm. Super just for handy. canning. So anyhow, it's pretty cheap to get all the little gadgets and stuff. All right. And that is going to be the end of part one. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We are now going to be moving on to part two, but if you guys have any questions, about part one, please let us know and we will do our best to get part two out quickly. I think we'll get it out really quick. So, you know. Hopefully. Well, you know keep, us, so. Keep looking out. Right. Yeah. Maybe it'll be three weeks late. We don't know. Yeah. Reach out to us, milkmaidspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, happy milking. Happy milking. Bye. Bye.